Byer here, welcoming you to Season 3. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And let's get growing! <laughs> Listeners, have you heard my most recent interview with J.M. Fortier? Did you know that he started an awesome new venture called Growers & Company, where they have a magazine that's printed that comes out twice a year that highlights the amazing farmers that he's taught personally. So you're going to learn from people who are practice, putting his practices into place on their farms. If you want to be a better farmer, you definitely want to subscribe to this magazine. That's going to be like a coffee table item on your shelf. And then the other thing, part of Growers and Company is there, he's created tools that he uses on his farm that he's like studied. You know, he got to travel all around the world when he wrote his book, The Market Gardener. If you don't have that, you absolutely have to get a copy of it. But he's, he's, he got to go travel to all these farms and then he would look at tools that they had in the hardware stores or using in these other farms, brought them back to his farm, you know, talked to a developer, came out with some really cool tools. Like he talks about his broad fork, the handles are just wood and that helps it make it light, but it's sturdy. It's just the exact kind of broad fork that I want. Um, They've got other really cool weeders and different things. And then he's got farmware that he designed that will keep you dry and keep you out there. I know with my, one of my big barriers was my garden shoes. So he's got boots and just great things that are stylish, comfortable, but most of all, they're going to keep you warm and dry when you're out in your garden doing all that hard work. So growers and company, growers.co check it out, get something for your favorite gardener. Definitely get a small scale farmers are changing the world t-shirt for your favorite farmer marker vendor. Do you belong to a CSA? I'll bet you want to get them a Christmas present this year. It doesn't have to be on time. I know it might be late when you're hearing this, but make sure you support growers.co. Um, their stuff is super affordable. The Canadian exchange right now, um, I just bought something for someone, um, a present for Kathy from the composters because I go to her laughter yoga with her. And I think it said it was like $25 and then, it, but it only took $20 out of my bank account. So I, I probably shouldn't be talking about the Canadian exchange, but I know his things are affordable. I research broad forks and what they cost. I, you know, it, it's a great deal. You will get so much use out of that tool. Um, so support Growers and Co. Join the amazing Patty Armbruster and I Saturday mornings, 9 a.m. Montana Standard Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific for Grow Live on YouTube. Patty Armbruster is going to ask your questions. You can submit them ahead of time and we'll be prepared with the answers. Uh, what do you want to know? We're starting out talking about selecting seeds, but she's going to answer everything from how to process local meats to you know, what pests are good or, you know, what plants are good to bring in beneficial insects into your garden. Just, we all know Patty knows so much about everything. I'll be asking the questions. She'll be answering them. We're going to be doing this on YouTube live Saturday mornings, 8 a.m. Pacific, 9 a.m. Montana Standard Time, 10 Central, 11 Eastern, Saturday mornings on YouTube Grow Live with Patty and Jackie.
Welcome to the Green Organic Garden. It is Tuesday, December 1st, 2020. We are in the finish line, everybody. Um, when I am recording, now this probably, you'll be listening to this uh, sometime in January after the new year for season three, because I'm recording season three. And I have an awesome guest on the line, a topic that um, Mike and I are, you know, is near and dear to our heart because we have a a very small orchard and um, they have a, a pretty big one, I think. So from Vermont, from Champlain Orchards, here is Bill Schur. So welcome to the show, Bill. Yes, hi, Jackie. Thanks, thanks for being interested in our operation and I look forward to sharing uh, with your guests. Uh, sort of our progression. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to hear about your strict eco-apple requirements, how you strive to minimize your carbon footprint and sustainably contribute to the community. Because that's what my show, I call my listeners green future growers. And we're all kind of dedicated to more than just growing healthy food, but creating a, a green environment. I have a lot of people who are interested in creating green jobs and we're just, um, I, I, I think, you know, having food available that's healthy for everybody and good for the environment in our communities is super important. So why don't you tell listeners a little bit, like, how big is your place? Tell us a little bit about you and your farm. Sure. Uh, it was 1998 when I purchased the first farm, and I was somewhere around 28 years old, I think. Um, now this is 20 years later, so I'm 48. Um my wife, Andrea, um, homeschools our two children, Rupert and Rosa. They're 10 years old and six years old. Uh, Rupert calls it uh, farm school because he, on the weekends, he's down here with me. Um, and during the week, he's planting orchards on the living room floor and with his blocks moving around. Uh, his sister actually milks cows on the living room floor in her imaginary world. So they have a a shared operation where they have orchards and um, a dairy operation. <laughs> I think she makes goat cheese. And uh, and then they ship to imaginary customers. So whether they're here at the farm or at home, uh, they're they're actively participating in, in our farm life. But the, the size of the orchard grew from the original um, purchase of Larrabee's Point Orchard, which is where we are geographically, about an hour south of Burlington um, and 20 minutes west of Middlebury. We're right on Lake Champlain about, um, we look down on the lake uh, from higher land, but we're, we're set back uh, about a half mile from the lake. And the, the first orchard is somewhere around 100 acres now, um, but we've acquired other parcels and the, the total fruit acreage that we manage is around 350 acres now. Well, Bill, you don't know this, but I am actually an elementary teacher by trade, and I love, like, love, 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 love to hear what your wife is doing with your kids. She should, like, videotape it and teach a bunch of kids, I'm sure, because that is just awesome, teaching entrepreneurship and farming all together. I'm sure they're doing some math. They're building a raise, it sounds like, already, if they're building little, you know, planting an orchard and just, uh, that is fantastic. So I do always start the show out, Bill, asking about like your very gar first gardening experience. Like, were you a kid? Did you grow up on a farm? Like, what did you grow? Who were you with? 
Sure. I, I grew up in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, and we lived um, in Elkridge, which is west of the city by uh, as little as 10 minutes. Um, but it was a rural parcel. Uh, we had six acres, and my mom still lives there. Um, she actively gardens, and one of my fun memories with my sister is we would harvest tomatoes in excess of what we needed for our, the home, and we would set up a little um, three-sided uh, chalk chalkboard that, that we stood behind, and we would sell tomatoes to church members after after church during uh, uh, refreshments. And so early on, it was, you know, we were counting quarters at that time and selling unusual tomatoes, and some of them um, it wasn't that we were selling seconds, but we certainly could sell seconds because we were young kids and bringing food into the city there. So people were very appreciative. And I guess that, that helped with the, I'm, I'm trying to reflect too on how we've created value added products here, trying to maximize um, the opportunities of the fruit we grow. I think my mom was fairly thrifty and we were, um, because my father died young at the, I was age two when he died of cancer. Oh, I'm so sorry. Of, oh, yeah, well, um, we we can talk about that a little bit more. But I have such a wonderful mother that that um, that, that I I don't know what I I missed basically because I never really knew him. Um, but nonetheless, mom was very thrifty, and so we would buy used clothes. Um, we she was part of a, a co-op membership where you. Um, cooperatively purchased a large wheel of Jarlsberg cheese and cut it up amongst the members. So there was that part of connection to the land, selling the tomatoes at church um, to, to, to the congregation. Um, and then also where we were also, food that we were purchasing in was being thoughtfully purchased um, where she could. Uh, so then how did you end up in Vermont? Well, my grandmother uh, attended the University of Vermont way back in the day. So she was one of the first women um, that would have attended the university. Um, and my aunt also attended the University of Vermont. So there was some family tradition. Um, and I was the last uh, grandchild that um, had the, the potential of the, of the four grandchildren, I was the last one to potentially be an option. I, there, there's a summer place that my grandmother maintained in Greensboro, Vermont, which is a lovely uh, Lake Caspian is the lake um, that abuts the town. And I would come up for two weeks to visit them each summer. And I never really wanted to go home to Maryland, um, even though I have loving family there. The, the traffic and the, um, the, the proximity to city really didn't suit me as well as the rural setting of Vermont, uh, where agriculture was very prevalent. Uh, so I did attend UVM. I was not accepted to the School of Business early admission, and I entered the School of Arts and Sciences um, on regular enrollment, and uh, eventually found, found my passion in the School of Natural Resources with a forest biology degree. So I have a Bachelor of Science in Forest Biology. And uh, you know, the transition from outing club trips where I got to visit the Green Mountains on telemark skis and just a really neat um, place to go to school. And um, I didn't 
didn't want to leave Vermont afterwards. And so I was able to work as an environmental consultant where we would um, test water wells and test minimum stream withdrawals for ski areas that were, were wanting to take water for snowmaking but not take too much uh, water to, to degrade um, fish habitat, for instance. Um, that was neat outdoor work, but I really found that when I started to look for a piece of land, all the pieces of the puzzle started to connect that I might be able to be professional um, in my career and, and actually be potentially self-employed. I don't have the self-employment gene in our family. Our, our family all work for larger corporations, um, such as Westinghouse um, and Hercules. Those are two companies that, that grandfathers and my father worked for. Um, so I was I'm a, a little bit of a renegade being entrepreneurial and independently employed. But the idea of purchasing a, a farm and being able to purchase it affordably because the Vermont Land Trust was um, able to, to conserve the property concurrently with, with my purchase. So that, that significantly helped reduce the, the entry, entry cost, having the land be conserved for agriculture. Jackie, are you familiar with, with land trusts? And, uh, I was just going to ask you, so how does that work? Do they like match you or help you with a down payment or match dollars? or Because you sure. pledged I... to keep the land, not develop the land, they give you some money or something? No, I'm so curious about this. I was just talking yeah. to someone about the same thing in Maine. Sure. Um, so the Vermont Land Trust um, pooled money from the Agency of Ag and the Vermont Housing and Conservation Board. Um, so, so three entities, the Agency of Ag, Vermont Housing and Conservation, um, and the, the Land Trust, which is privately funded, um, they pulled their money and, and purchased the development rights. So when we signed papers for this property, it's 158 acres. Uh, in 1998, it was valued at $380,000. And I think my mortgage was after my down payment. Um, basically, they purchased half, half the value of the property so my my after my down payment, the mortgage was only on one hundred and eighty thousand um, dollars, and I was also able to convince the bank that I was not farming. I was not entering as a commercial um, loan candidate, but rather um, as a hobbyist. So my I was keeping my day job at the environmental consulting firm. And I was able to go from a 12% commercial loan rate down to six and a half or so percent, seven, seven percent maybe, um, because it was, it was, it, even though it was a farm we were purchasing, I was arguing that I was leasing the farm, which was true. We leased the farm for two years uh, before I took over um, independently. And the the farm. This is so cool to hear, Bill. Well, it's a really neat story because at 28 years old, I, I didn't have any experience farming and um, I had passion and I loved, I loved trees, right? Forest biology, I was connected to, to trees, but I didn't know anything about growing fruit. So the neighbors that also had orchards here um, were very welcoming to a young person coming into the industry and they, they would answer questions, um, occasionally share equipment, um, and eventually, the second farm we purchased, that man's name is Sandy Witherall, he, he began to sell portions of his crop to us because we were managing our crops 
he was managing in a similar way to us in terms of our, our eco-certification. And so we could blend his fruit in with our own fruit quite, quite readily. Um, and eventually he retired and we were able to purchase his farm, at which point before the farm purchase, we were then purchasing his entire crop, which was from a 40-acre orchard was somewhere around 30,000 bushels, which was half of our fruit supply at that time. So the, the, the other, uh, there's been two properties since that that are also conserved with the land trust. So there's um, four main farms. All of them are conserved with the land trust, which helped, again, reduce our entry costs on each property. And that allowed us to divert capital into planting new orchards or renovating orchards or, or updating uh, buildings to, to, um, to help the fruit industry and our business. So what do you do with all these apples? Like, do you just sell them well, in Vermont or do you ship them all over? Yeah, the, the model started with deliveries happening in a station wagon with 20 bushels at a time. And, you know, that was the first taste of what it was like. I, I had a small lawn mowing business as a child and I understood. I, I looked forward to taking care of those customers' properties and, um, saving money in the process, putting it in the bank, um, which prepared me for the first farm purchase. But um, upon purchasing this first farm, it was called Larrabee's Point Orchard at the, at the time, and we renamed it Champlain Orchard. Um, the first day I joined our crew harvesting, and the second day I realized that they were far better at harvesting and that no one was focusing on selling that fruit. So day two, uh, the first year's harvest was uh, focused on developing a small route with the station wagon. And that was really informative. And I think um, it might might be interesting for for uh, listeners to understand that that was the early stages of understanding direct consumer. You know, if you go to a farmer's market, you hear exactly what consumers are seeking. And they might be purchasing those things from a neighboring um uh, someone else that's attending the farm market that, that's listened to their requests and is already serving them. So that was really helpful to have direct contact with the buyers at food co-ops or farmers markets, excuse me, I should say not farm markets, because we never got, we were always geared up for wholesale. We never really attempted to do direct farmers markets, which is a wonderful way to have direct feedback from, from your customers but we could get pretty good feedback from the food co-op buyers that were supporting us uh, because they were hearing directly from their, their membership. Um, but I, I veered off course here, Jackie, uh, quickly as you pack You're a fine. fresh apple. You, this is great. Yeah. Quickly. When you pack a fresh apple, you end up with an apple that maybe um, has a blemish on the surface from rubbing another limb, um, an apple limb or, um, Maybe it has minor insect damage. Um, so we quit. It, it, the, the first year, I only accumulated the call fruit, and I, I never set up the cider press in time to utilize that fruit. But it was a good lesson in not selling that, that um, secondary fruit, what we call call fruit, um, that, that's not making it to the fresh market at, at the market prices, which were so low at that time, $2 a bushel or something that it was insulting. So I just, I never even sold to the buyers that would have taken that fruit. I just held on to it with the hopes that I could press it and add value. 
Um, but by year two, we were set up with a cider press. And then eventually, Middlebury College approached us because they were seeking applesauce. And they helped us understand what their weekly buying habits were. Um, and that their commitment to purchasing a certain amount of applesauce helped us invest in the equipment to process applesauce on site. And another example of that was in developing the bakery business of apple pies that we sell, um, which currently we sell somewhere around 25,000 apple pies during a year um, on our wholesale truck routes. Um, there was a small frozen pie uh, company up and coming. It was called Vermont Mystic Pie, and they were making a high-end apple pie for Whole Foods at the time. And uh, they made a commitment to purchase the equipment that we would then utilize, and we agreed upon a price that we would sell the slices to. So we were guaranteeing them supply and product, and they were helping, and I built the facility to, to slice the apples in, and they, but they owned the equipment. Um, when they did sell and close up shop, um, we ended up purchasing the equipment from them at that time. To, to supply our own pie business, which was a fresh pie, not a frozen pie. So I, again, didn't complete the full, uh, because there's other evolutions, such as um, over time, um, because we were slicing for our apple pies, we began to slice apples for wholesale customers that were also bakeries. Um, and then hard cider became uh, sort of an up-and-coming opportunity, and we we heavily invested in our cider um, business, and that is now, years later, now self-supporting itself. Um, so we, we have a brand of hard cider that is distributed from New Jersey up through um, Connecticut, Massachusetts, um, New Hampshire. So that's the most shelf-stable product that we make that leave, leaves the farm through other distribution. This is so interesting. Oh, but my listeners' heads are just spinning like all these business ideas that they didn't know and potentials and possibilities. And even if all they're doing is buying from somebody like you in the future. <laughs> but um, but who knew? I mean, this is just so cool learning how you went from selling, what did you say, 20 bushels in the back of your station wagon to 25,000 apple pies in 20 years? I mean, Bill, you've taken entrepreneurship to the next level. <laughs> yeah, but that that has come with challenges and, and, it's, and it's like what is a, appears to be very successful from the outside world. Um, we've had the passion for growing now includes um, learning how to be a good people manager, right? And surround yourself with people that have interest in areas of the business that, that I don't excel at, such as um, uh, compliance, maybe, food safety, uh, finance, sales and marketing. There are, are now staff members specializing in components of the business that I had a fundamental understanding of, but uh, it's been it's been really rewarding maybe to hire co-colleagues that, that um, can take their area of, of focus and, and um, run with it. But it, it isn't without its challenges. We, we've had um, seasonal changes in, in uh, crop yields. Uh, this year, we because of 
COVID, there's a lot more focus on buying locally. So we were very well set up to supply local markets. Um, but there, because people aren't eating out, our, our retail sales, when we deliver to supermarkets or food co-ops, have, have risen significantly. And so that's good news, but it also concerns me because it, it, if we project forward, we think we'll be running out of fruit. I like to sell fruit year-round. Um, and we, we've gone to great measures to develop um, a storage facility that um, runs very efficiently, but it, it can store fruit year-round so that a Macintosh picked in September tastes as good as it does um, when the room is opened up in July. And you might wonder how that's done, um, and I'm happy to talk about that if you think. You know I want to know that. Yeah, so the... The, the technology is not new. It's called controlled atmosphere storage. Um, and we have 7,000 bushel rooms. So each tractor trailer of fruit is about 1,000 bushels. So if you see a tractor trailer driving down the road, that holds about, if you had apples in there in bins, it would be about 1,000 bushels. And um, that's 40,000 pounds. So the rooms that we've built are either 3,000 bushel rooms or 7,000 bushel rooms. And these are insulated, refrigerated rooms where the moisture, we have um, high moisture content, 98%, um, so we don't desiccate the fruit. Um, but the, the, the most critical part of the equipment that manages these rooms is actually sucking the oxygen out of the room and replacing it with nitrogen. So we're breathing 21% oxygen right now as humans. Um, and the fruit behind these sealed rooms is only allowed to breathe two and a half percent oxygen. And uh, the nitrogen that we're naturally breathing in the air is, is um, what's altered so that there's a significantly higher percentage of nitrogen than, than the oxygen that we're currently breathing. So as the fruit respirates, just like we do as humans, it's taking in oxygen and, and exhaling CO2. Uh, we have to manage the CO2 levels with, with another piece of equipment called a scrubber. Um, so the nitrogen generator is what extracts the oxygen from the room, and the scrubber is what maintains the, the atmosphere so the CO2 levels aren't rising too high, um, which, can, which can lead to storage, storage degradation of the fruit. Hopefully that wasn't too technical other than to say that we can periodically every two to three weeks as we sell through one room, we can open up a new room um, and provide very firm, flavorful fruit to customers. Um, so the, the model is quite nice in that when we call wholesale customers two to three times a week, they, their orders are prepared that same day. The cider is pressed, the pie is made, the apple is packed. It's not moving from our warehouse to another warehouse, and we have very good control of the supply chain that way, and that that leads to hopefully happy fruit on the shelf, happy fruit in the consumer. So, where did you work? Like, it just developed over time with different connections, and this problem came up, and you changed and pivoted and tried this and that, or like, like how, man. Do most fruit growers have these giant storage rooms? Where my husband and I are experiencing, like you know, on a very small scale, that problem. Like we've been slowly getting the five-gallon buckets full of apples and potatoes off the kitchen floor. Sure, sure, sure. Um, well, uh, we 
you know, I started with a two, I, when I purchased the farm, it came with a 200 bushel walk-in cooler. And I can remember one night I was going out on deliveries, which by the way, was with a pickup truck with a tarp over the, the fruit. So it was, I had to drive uh, efficiently because the fruit was slowly starting to freeze on certain mornings. Um, and uh, I remember one night we had some issue with the compressor on this walk-in cooler. Um, so if I'm selling 20 bushels that are at a time, you know, it, it looks like it's maybe a 10-week period if I do the math correctly on a 200 bushel cooler. Um, we were getting into some cold weather and, and the, the, it got, because I hadn't noticed the compressor was off um, and, and maybe the cooler wasn't as insulated as it should have been, um, we, froze, we froze the remaining inventory of, say, 40 or 50 bushels. And I... Oh, I had no. done the calculations and I, I, you know, I was here alone at the time and I felt very, um, very vulnerable. Um, I was thankful that I had the day job still, um, but, but it puts everything in perspective. So I do regret not writing a journal of all of the crap that we have experienced that could have resulted in us throwing in the towel and saying, you know, this is too difficult or too risky or, um, you know, it, I think many of us in agriculture feel beaten down many times. And I often picture a weeble wobble that, you know, you get knocked over and if you can stand back up, um, you know, you're, it's like you're in a boxing ring and, and how many times can you get back up? And when you get back up, is it, are you enthusiastic about making the change to prevent that from happening again? And I, I really thrive on the, experience of um, being punished for a bad decision and rewarded for a good decision. And we, we're on clay soils here. A lot of our best soil is Farmington loam up on higher elevation orchards, but we have some lower elevation soils that need drainage and um, water removed in the spring when, when, the, when the tree roots are growing most. Um, but that clay soil is forgiving in the summer when we're in a droughty situation. They hold moisture fairly well. So you know, you always, you know, it's always, it's, it's a nice opportunity to experience two different soils and understand um, what, what can happen in different orchards on different soils. But I'm on a, on a bit of a tangent other than to say, you don't really want to be on those clay soils after a rain. Like last night, we got an inch and a half of rain here. Um, we're trying to do some drainage work for next year's orchard planting, um, which requires putting some four inch drain tile um, it, people can picture that perforated black pipe that's often used around houses um, to make sure foundations stay dry. That's what we use in the orchard to take away excess moisture from these clay soils. Um, but it's, it, today's a good day to be talking to Jackie um, and preparing for doing the drainage work once, once our, our orchards have dried out a bit. So I, I guess the penalty for doing things at the wrong time and the reward for doing them at the right time and it was really fun to watch um, my neighbors up the road, the Douglas family, Bob and Scott Douglas were sort of my mentors. They, um, we, we mentioned Sandy Witherall sold his farm to us. Well, we just this year were able to close on the Douglas orchard. And those two men were like Sandy were often doing things at just the right time. And so if I was trying to get a jump on it, I would get my tractor stuck and I'd watch them go out the next morning on frozen ground and push the brush 
um, that I should have waited an extra 12 hours to push. Um, so that 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 reward, you know, that reward for doing things properly is, is um, inspires me potentially to to do better each year. And the penalties for making poor decisions, uh, we, we obviously are trying to minimize the, the number of poor decisions we make. You are just a wealth of knowledge. I love the way you talk about, well, you're not necessarily talking about building the relationships, but obviously you have built all these great relationships that are enabling you to be so successful. And I just think that's super important. You know, I, I always um, thank you for, for the recognizing that there has been a lot of hard work. I think we've got a long way to go and I'm eager for another generation potentially to take things further because um, uh, there may, there may be some much, um, well, let's just say it's very important that a, a business be nimble and be able to um, pivot. And, and um, we have our head of sales and marketing, Ben Rule, currently uh, often talks about the white space. And that the white space is, an, is a space where competitors are not um, um, competing. And uh, so in our hard cidery, for instance, we've got all of these folks that are um, – on-farm cideries or off-farm cideries or um, adding ingredients that are grown off-site or on-site. And we, we're trying to position ourselves um, where there are, where we think our customers will, will find value, right? And that's, that's the goal of business, right, is to find, is to figure out what your customers are seeking before they actually know that they're seeking it. Um, because that potentially is the open area where, um, and I hate, hopefully people aren't offended by this, but I do a lot of reading at night, uh, and I've been following Elon Musk and Tesla, and uh, I may have a jaded view based on the articles that I'm reading, but um, there's an example of someone that was really visionary with this electronic vehicle and really pushing it, um, and wow, you fast forward 20 years, and now General Motors and Ford are, are playing catch-up, and, and um, uh, Volkswagen, the same thing. Um, the, 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 the knowledge that Tesla has, has um, you know, their knowledge bank is so rich right now that, that, that they have intellectual property that, that these large, much larger companies, um, in terms of sales volume, General Motors and Ford and Volkswagen, um, don't have. So it is interesting for us to balance, Jackie, the investments in um, new orchards or equipment to do things a little more efficiently um, and balance that with the investment in intellectual, um, you know, the staff that are here and trying to make sure that the orchard's positioned to, to handle rocky roads ahead and market changes and um, product opportunities. Bill, speaking of speaking of what your customers want, my listeners always tell me we want to know how to like be the most productive, how to be the best garden, you know, grow. So, how about some tips on like? I can't believe you have you must have like seventy five different apples listed here that you're growing. Like, 
what are some tips you'd tell people like if they were going to start an orchard or grow some apple trees like some things like you absolutely want to do this or you don't want to do that yeah it's interesting i, I mean we go to these by the way cornell university is a major source of um information for me as an orchardist sure. um they have a they have a very deep program there of professors that um lecture frequently and we can we can learn from them there's also an organization called the international fruit tree tour um the ifda and um they travel globally um the attendance is far higher when it's on the west coast or east coast where uh because half of the membership is 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 u.s but they have global membership so it's a real neat opportunity to travel and see other operations and that's not directly answering your question other than to say that um, when you get outside of your own playground, you competition, people doing things that you emulate don't feel like competitors because they're, they're selling to uh, markets far from you and they're more willing to share ideas and you shame on us as farmers if we spend 20 years trying to figure something out ourselves when there may be role models out there that are have worked through some of those problems on their own um, or organizations like the ISTA that that can uh, really provide resources and contacts um, to answer questions and to provide results so that we can understand returns on investments that we're planning now Coming back to your question, Jackie, because I do get off topic, is um, it's wonderful <laughs> to try to plant a disease-resistant apple because they, they would require less fungicide, which is um, can be organic or conventional, or in our case, something in between, which we consider ecological. Um, but a disease-resistant apple would be um, Adams County Nursery sells um, disease-resistant trees. Uh, and uh, Waffler Nursery does, and we're beginning to um, also um, grow our own nursery trees. And so if you do plant disease-resistant trees, such as Liberty Apples or Crimson Crisp or Crimson Topaz, um, there's many of them, um, they are potentially less uh, vulnerable to the fungus called scab. And scab is... Um, you know, what creates those large black blotches on roadside apples that you see or unmanaged home orchards. Um, so if you already start with the advantage of having some scab resistance in the variety, um, it's only a marketing challenge then to convince your food co-op membership that, uh, you know, they should try a, uh, a pristine apple instead of a ginger gold apple. And we're very fortunate in Vermont that there's a really strong food co-op community, many food co-ops, and those people are looking for something different than they can buy at the supermarket, um, and they're particularly interested in the disease-resistant variety that, um, uh, regardless of whether it's organic or conventional or eco-grown, um, is visited less by, a, by an orchard sprayer. So my recommendation would be, of course, don't plant one variety because often apple trees need a, a companion for cross-pollination. Um, and then consider some disease-resistant varieties that might be easier to manage. You do have to make a decision about rootstock, and 
um, a semi-dwarf rootstock like a like a number seven rootstock or a 26 rootstock will create a tree with a little more vigor than some of the trees we're planting. We're, we're now planting trees, believe it or not, only two feet apart um, on highly dwarfing rootstocks so that we can improve uh, the efficiency for labor activities such as pruning or harvesting. Um, this may sound really crazy, but, but the technology is there to robotically harvest fruit right now um, apples in particular. And um, if you want to take that even, if you can understand harvesting fruit on a trellis on a, on a single plane where the canopy of the tree is, is rather small because the branches are being kept only one foot apart because the tree next to it can only grow a foot toward you. Um, when you start to grow trees with exposure to that much sunlight, um, the fruit would ripen at the same time. Um, whether it's a human or a robot harvesting that fruit, it gets, uh, you can see some efficiencies are gained there. Uh, but we've noticed that our, our spray inputs are decreased by over 50%, whether we're using organic or conventional or, in our case, eco um, materials. So the yield per acre is up and the inputs um, are, are down by over 50%, and that's very appealing. Uh, as a, it's a significant upfront investment, Jackie, to set up orchards like that. Um, but the, the long-term return and the health of the food coming off of those orchards is, is uh, very exciting. Dwarf trees harvested by robots. Cool. So do you actually have a robot or you're just following Elon Musk who's going to get you one soon? Uh, um, Elon is not returning my text currently. No. Uh, I haven't reached out to I haven't reached out to Elon. It's actually a company. I'm embarrassed. Um, my head of sales sent me the the link, and we I think it's a European company, and I don't know if it's Germany. Um, but they've taken a little bit further. We first off, we have to get the orchards planted, and it takes years to establish these orchards, right? Because they're in our nursery for one or two years to graft the trees that we 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 produce. Um, and we plant them out into orchards, which takes another three years before we <clears throat> grow the tree large enough to, to allow it to fruit, right? Because we don't want it fruiting as an infant and, and dwarfing its adult potential. Does that make sense? Uh, we we want to fill. It does, canopy. but I had no idea. Okay. Yeah. So we actually take off the fruit in these new orchards for the first two years. We we defoliate them by by hand plucking off the blossoms so that the trees can focus on growing and filling the space, um, at which point at year three, we, we begin to allow them to, to fruit. Um, and I got on a little sidetrack, but the, the key is to have the infrastructure of the orchard so that either um, a robot on a machine moving or get this, a drone um, actually with the same knowledge of fruit color, um, you, you can program the drone or the, or the robot machine to um, harvest a, student, a certain fruit um, blush or color. And our apple packing line has cameras taking 10 photos of every apple, and we, it will reject apples for, that we can divert over to slicing um, or applesauce or sweet cider if it doesn't have the adequate color. That same 
photo intelligence is now being incorporated in these harvesting devices. And no, we don't own one yet, but the technology is moving so fast that we're trying to at least have our orchards set up so that we can um, uh, someday benefit from that possibility. <clears throat> we use men from Jamaica to harvest our fruit, and they are wonderful men. They come over for some time between 10 months and two months, depending on the job order. It's a legal program set up by the, the government back uh, during uh, when the U.S. was at war, we, we had a shortage of labor, and so the, the H-2A program has existed since that time. Um, these are men that have come back to this orchard, for some of them for 20 and 25 years, so they're very experienced with our operation. Um, I often say that, um, you know, if, so, if folks are criticizing us for using what's considered foreign labor, um, I actually argue that the 30 to 35 U.S. full-time jobs that we supply year-round um, would not exist if we did not have access to this um, um, professional labor force that can come seasonally and take the fruit off during that short window of time that we, we uh, need to increase our labor force for harvest. So then do um, you supply housing? Where do they stay? Do yes, they this is not an inexpensive endeavor. Um, the because it's a legal program, um, the housing is inspected. We have to have bunk spaces. We have a, a crew this year with 54 men came over uh, from Jamaica. So we have to have um, uh, inspectable um, housing for, for 54 men for that short window of time of two months um, and provide transportation for those men from Jamaica. And you can imagine air flights here and back for 54 men is not a a, a small investment to be making before you actually harvest any of your apples. You're you're crossing your fingers that you won't have a hailstorm during harvest or heavy winds because you've committed to a, this labor force for a certain amount of time during in the job order. Um, so this is this is um, still a very risky business, but I do see that. By the way, committing to um, three robots. Um, what if what, you know it's way beyond my brain power to um, to service these robots when when uh, when they have a bad day? <laughs> um, so yes, they could harvest day and night and um, and uh, but but what happens, Jackie, when those machines are down um, because there would, there would be no fallback plan in terms of human labor at that time. I don't foresee this orchard ever moving 100% toward that type of technology because um, there will be certain fruit that's that's mark that's desirable in the marketplace that is vulnerable to um, bruising or uh, other issues with the robotic harvesting, um, despite how advanced that technology might become. And I feel a little awkward spending time on this interview talking about robotics, but. Um, we did talk about a fellow 20 years ago that was delivering in a station wagon. Um, and then when you want to secure employment for 35 U.S. folks, and some of those are professional jobs, um, the equivalent of someone, you know, at a, at a firm. You know, we, we have employees that have worked for firms in, in Manhattan, for instance, that have chosen a different way of life up here. 
Um, so there's some there's some commitment we're making, and there, there will be always that balance of uh, of human and machine and uh, how we deploy capital um, and how we listen to our customers in terms of what what they want to see. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't envision it being very sexy for this farm to be run all by robots, and, and nor do I really um, want to interact with robots. Um, but I think that, that some kind of balance, uh, if I can foresee uh, what Rupert and Rosa might be managing someday at this orchard, um, shame on me if I haven't passed over an orchard to them that is um, aligned and prepared for um, including some technology advancements to, to remain competitive and grow the healthiest food we can. I think you got all the entrepreneurial genes in your whole family put into just you, Bill. This story is amazing. I love how you're like thinking about your kids. So funny side note, I worked for a different podcaster this summer and he, his father actually came here from Japan. I wonder if he worked for you for a while. They were in the Hudson Valley he grew okay. up, but his dad was, um, became a, um, like one of the foremen for picking fruit and harvesting fruit. I mean, it changed his life. He's so dedicated. His father passed away a few years ago, but his dedication to his dad, how much he appreciates that his dad had that job and that how he was able to bring his family here. And now he's a very successful person um you know in helping change the world so i i mean i think uh you know you've done some amazing stuff there and you know do you use i mean we use i i just i think technology is a great thing and that yeah do you want to see drones sure why not i mean i'm all for it um for you know to me like one of my new most favorite movies have you ever seen that movie mcfarland where kevin cosner is down in um, like Southern California and he becomes a track coach for these like five or six um, Mexican kids who harvest, you know, all weekend and in the field and they're, he goes out and picks cabbages with them one Saturday and he is just, you know, and they pick almonds and they're just, you know, traveling from orchard to orchard and, or, you know, and just their family are, are farmers and it's a great movie. But, you know, if they didn't have to do those jobs, I mean, it's just backbreaking labor and they're out there. And like the poor people down there now and the smoke in California having to harvest food, like my heart just goes out to them. So, you know, I think it's a good thing. Yeah, you're bringing up a point that is, um, you know, I'm often, the more I studied a subject in college, maybe the more complicated things got and maybe... <laughs> maybe I began to get um, challenged or frustrated so I'd move on to greener pastures and something else that I could at least get elementary entry-level interest in. Um, so there's a shortfall on my part in not closing off um, projects or, or taking things to the doctorate level, right, of, of schooling. Um, but one thing that I found with running this orchard or, or being a part of leadership here is – there is no end to opportunities to um, make improvements. And with our diversification of growing the, the nursery stock to delivering the final product, whether it's fresh apples or hard cider, um, there are 
are endless projects each morning to come into work and, and improve upon. And I think that that is what keeps me stimulated to realize that, um, you know, it, I went to school at a private school, friend's school in Baltimore, and I think it was churning out at the time quite a few lawyers and doctors. And, um, you know, you always wonder, like, what what is success? And would they think that farming up here in Vermont is is a successful um, product of their their education. Um, I hope that the answer to that would be that if there's a, a thoughtful person that's contributing to the community, um, regardless of their their uh, financial take, that that is success. And so we we I'm not always happy farming here, but I'm always challenged by farming. And um, you know, that going back to that weeble wobble scenario, getting knocked down and trying to get back up. That's what keeps me stimulated here is the um, opportunity to work with people and machinery and to try to um, balance that and um, grow good food and be, and be fair to those that are, that are helping deliver that food. Bill, I guarantee you, your school is proud of you. So I actually have another interview starting at 10. So we're going to kind of like yeah. wrap things up a little. I want to save, I want to ask my final question and then you can tell everybody how to connect with you. But is there anything that we didn't talk about that you just really, really wanted to get out there? No, I, mean, I think we you've covered been a, a, a wonderful, a wonderful sport. <laughs> just, uh, hearing through some, some, some discussions. But yeah, let's, um, it's good timing to wrap up here too. And I'm uh, happy to answer an additional question. Okay, so, well, it's on your list, my final question. Bill, if there's one change you would like to see to create a greener world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity or organization you're passionate about or project you'd like to see put into action? Like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale? Yeah, well, I'm really, really thrilled to see that um, globally there's... um, an opportunity to look at renewable resources. I, 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 I understand that petroleum and, and other fossil fuels may be required for certain human activity, um, but I hate to see them misused uh, and prematurely used um, by our current society and not thinking about the future. Um, I am very concerned about the loss of agricultural soil and um, if you look at this raising, rising population, the thought of vertically growing in an indoor environment, um, it seems like that's going to come back to haunt us um, if everything is being grown indoors under UV lights. Um, it feels like our society would be very vulnerable. Um, so preserving open land, especially agricultural land, seems to be uh, so the Vermont Land Trust is dear to my heart, right? They, we, we are very grateful for the support they've allowed us to enter as farmers and, and continue to farm. Um, there's also another group that hopefully is emulated in other states um, called Farm Viability. And that's, a, that's an organization through the Agency of Ag that um, has some federal and state funds and um, opens up enrollment each year and ask farmers to communicate sort of their ambitions um, and 
seek funding for projects that uh, they would like help with. And that was a really healthy program. So instead of you know, paying for us to go to a class with 20 other growers to learn QuickBooks, um, that model of farm viability was to identify that QuickBooks was something the farm needed and to hire a consultant to actually help set it up, um, the structure of QuickBooks tailored to your business and make sure that your staff was up and running with it. Um, so uh, hopefully that was a clear example of a model where you're not just offering a free class, but you're actually tailoring it to one business's, in this case, one farm's needs. Um, and if, if in addition to QuickBooks, there was a need for um, um, uh, researching product development, an expert in, in that area would, would provide their, their wisdom and advice. So if we could emulate um, what the Vermont Land Trust is doing globally, if we can look at what farm Vermont Farm Viability Program is doing, um, and then also, so I didn't, I came up with three things, and really focus on the, the renewable energy and, and um, trying to avoid, minimize the use of fossil fuels so that they are a resource we can tap into when necessary in the future. But um, we've made great, great headway recently, and I'm really happy about the political change uh, that's, that's up and coming um, with, with a greater focus on uh, renewables. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that because all I could think here sitting here is let's have Bill be the new undersecretary of agriculture. Uh, oh, Bill, I wish I didn't have to go, but I do. Tell listeners how to get in touch with you. How do they find your website? How do they order your apples or some cider yeah, or something for a pie? Yeah, you just, that's coincidental because last week we did launch our online store. And so it's um, champlainorchards.com. And that's C-H-A-M-P-L-A-I-N, Orchards. And uh, hopefully they'll be pleasantly surprised by fresh fruit that we would be shipping seasonally. Um, and hard cider and um, apple butter cider syrup over time as we scale those up as well. So thank you, everyone. Uh, thank you so much, Bill. I got to get a drink really quick. And then my next thing starts yep. at 10. I will send you the link when this comes up. You were so wonderful. You have a great day. Love to your wife and kids. You guys say stay safe and healthy and keep up the awesome work. Super. Thanks for doing what you're doing, Jackie. Aw, thank you. Have a great day. Bye. Hey, listeners. Have you been to Growers.co, James Fortier's newest venture? He's got an amazing magazine featuring the inspiring farmers who have followed in his footsteps, taken his classes, put his practices into work that he's highlighting in a great printed magazine. He's got tools that he's designed that he's developed from um, looking at tools around the world while he did his book tour that just he uses on his farm. I mean, it's amazing the information on his website. You can learn about how to use these tools. They're totally affordable. I'm telling you, the Canadian Exchange is great right now. Um, and farmware that's stylish, it's comfortable, but most of all, it's practical for working in the garden. I know one of my biggest barriers was garden shoes. He's got boots, coats, um, and you definitely want to get a small scale farmers are changing the world t-shirt either for yourself, get one for your favorite CSA or farmer market vendor. It'll make them feel good. It'll make you feel good. 
and support growers.co. That man has changed our world for the better. He's been so generous with his time, his energy, and um, deserving of uh, uh, your shopping dollars. So growers.co. Join the amazing Patty Armbruster and I Saturday mornings, 9 a.m. Montana Standard Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific for Grow Live on YouTube. Patty Armbruster is going to ask your questions. You can submit them ahead of time and we'll be prepared with the answers. Uh, What do you want to know? We're starting out talking about selecting seeds, but she's going to answer everything from how to process local meats to you know, what pests are good or, you know, what plants are good to bring in beneficial insects into your garden. Just, we all know Patty knows so much about everything. I'll be asking the questions. She'll be answering them. We're going to be doing this on YouTube live Saturday mornings, 8 a.m. Pacific, 9 a.m. Montana Standard Time, 10 Central, 11 Eastern, Saturday mornings on YouTube Grow Live with Patty and Jackie. Do you know someone who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast? If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd share the Organic Gardener podcast with a friend. Thanks again for listening and remember, grow local.